So we have this passage that continues from last week. And before we jump in there, I do want to recognize our University of Mobile baseball team is with us this morning. Where are they? Over here, I think, because nice looking young men over there. I assume that's who they are right there. It's always good to have you guys with us. Coach John Seymour, I think, sitting over here. I don't blame him. I'd say as far away from him as I could. But uh, yeah, it's good. always good to have y'all with us. And we've had a long partnership with the University of, of Mobile baseball team. Uh, and it's awesome. Rusty Roberts, our uh, college pastor, is also uh, their chaplain. And he has a lot invested in those boys and the program as well. So it's always great when we have you guys um, visit with us. So in this passage, um, we have this picture, a continuation of what we talked about last week. This is Moses having this conversation with God up on Mount Sinai. Now, I know what you're thinking right here, because you're thinking, man, it's been so long since they've been in Egypt, and now they're here. Do you realize we're only a month and a half out of Egypt right now? Okay, so it's only been a month and a half since they've walked across the Red Sea. It's only been a month and a half since they've seen God rain down bread from heaven, water come out of a rock, Moses hold his hands up in the air with the help of some of those assistants that he had with him, and they had the victory, the first military victory that they had. It's only been a month and a half. It's not like years have passed. It's not like a long time has passed and they've forgotten what God has done. In a month and a half, they've forgotten what God has done for them. Now, that's what's amazing about this passage when you look at it and see how quickly their hearts turn. But you know what? It's amazing about all of us, too. Uh, it doesn't take us very long to forget what God did for us. It's in that moment we pray and we pray and we languish before the Lord and God answers our prayers. And then all of a sudden what happens is we forget what God did and we're on to the next thing. God, well, I know you did that, but can you do this? Will you show up this time? And you know, what we see is that throughout history, God's batted a thousand, but we always think he's going to mess up this next one. I can't trust him with this next one. He's not going to come through. He can't be depended upon. And that's our human nature. And we see a lot of human nature in this passage today. These first few uh, verses kind of set up the passage because it's a continuation, like I said, of the conversation that Moses has already started with God up on Mount Sinai. If you remember last week was when God kind of finished up and began this conversation saying, hey, Moses, just go ahead and go down because your people that you led out of Egypt are already rebelling against me and they're down there worshiping an idol. And um, so I'm done with them. I'm going to consume them. So our passage picks up with Moses intervening and interceding for the people. Okay. So I want you to look at it again. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot? All that means is intense. Why is your wrath intense against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Think about this for a moment. Did you see what he did there with the words? God said to him, your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt. Moses goes, no, 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 God, they're your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt. And how did he say it? with a mighty hand. Now, again, I want you to understand something about this. God has not forgotten who brought them out of Egypt. God's not confused at this point. Um, God is having this conversation with Moses, not for the benefit of God. God doesn't have to be reminded of the promises that he made to Abraham. God doesn't need to be reminded of who brought who out of where. God doesn't need to be reminded of where he promised he was going to take them. So then we have to ask ourselves, why have this conversation? Why even talk to Moses? That's a great question. 
Because if there is no need for this conversation, God goes and just destroys the people on his own. He doesn't have to get Moses' permission to do this. So that should cause us to go. The reason God's having this conversation is for the benefit of Moses, for Moses to remember who brought who out of where, for Moses to remember what promises were made back when, for Moses to remember where they are in relation to where they've been promised they are going. So this is all for Moses' benefit to understand some things and to bring out some leadership principles in Moses. Moses is called to lead these people into the promised land across this wilderness, and he's got to learn who he is. He's got to understand who God is. He has to understand where his authority comes from. And that's what God is leading him through in this conversation. Look how it continues. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self to say to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all of this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster. Let me just point out something to you right here. This is where the translators of the ESV copped out because the word here is not relent. It is the word repent. It is no doubt about it. That's the way it should be translated. Matter of fact, if you have the, uh, the, the new revised version, that's the word they use because it's the right word. Now, the ESV probably translated this way to avoid theological conundrums. Why in the world would God need to repent of anything? Well, the problem is we think of repentance as turning from sin, but the word repent has nothing to do with sin. We just hear it in that context all the time, so that's what we associate it with. But the word by itself, the word repent means to turn away from what you intended to do. So in other words, when we use it in the context of sin, we talk about, I've repented from my life of sin. In other words, I've been living my life this way. I have repented and I turned from that and I'm going in another direction. So the word repent, which could be a definition of repent, could be relent, which is why the ESV and other translations say, well, I want to use that word instead because that's a lot less problems. Um, but ultimately, that's what's happening here. God is saying, I have every right to do this right here. I am fully within my justice, within my character to do this right here. But Moses, because you've come along and you've interceded and you have remembered these things, I want you to know that I am going to turn away from what I could do and should do in this matter as far as the law is concerned, and I'm going to do something different. Aren't you glad that God is a God who repents and relents from what he should do and what he could do with us. It's a reminder again that the God of the Old Testament is not a shrewd, hateful, vengeful God. What we find is the God of the Old Testament is just like Jesus in the New Testament. He's a God of great compassion, a God of mercy, and a God who is incredibly patient. Okay? It's the same God. There's no difference, okay? There's not one picture in the Old Testament, one picture in the New. It's the same. What we have different is the law and its consequences and the standard of the law not being able to be met in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you have a picture of the law being met by the person of Jesus. Therefore, those who are found in Jesus now meet the standards of the law. 
That's the difference of what you see of how this is meted out in our lives. Okay, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we continue to read here. Look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing his people. Now, I want to remind you too, right here, now we're talking about the people who have lost their way. And we use the word lost a lot. We use it in theological terms. But I want to remind you of a passage found in Luke chapter 14. It's a parable that Jesus shared about three lost things. Now, we don't always hear them in their full context. Jesus told this parable all together, three of them all together, and they're connected in their meaning. When you separate them from the other one, you really miss the thrust of what Jesus was trying to relay, although they do have principles each in their own way. But there's a parable of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. The lost coin, it says that a lady had 10 uh, valuable coins. She lost one of them. She tore her house apart till she found it. When she found it, she rejoiced. The second one was a lost sheep. It says that one sheep wandered away from the other sheep, and there was a hundred of them, and one of them wandered away. And the shepherd left the 99 to go get that one, and he brought it back. And he rejoiced when he brought it back. And then the last one is where Jesus spends the most of his time. And that's why a lot of reasons I think people preach on just the lost son without the caveat of the first two. But to understand the lost son, you fully have to understand the first two because the whole parable is about humanity and how we are lost and for what reasons we are lost. And I'm just going to give you just a, a summary of that. The lost coin was lost because of someone's irresponsibility. The lost sheep was lost because it distracted itself into lostness. The lost son wanted to be lost. Now, the reason that's important to understand is the lost coin was lost because of someone else's irresponsibility, and someone tore the house apart to find it, and when they found it, they rejoiced and brought it back to where it should be. In the second one, the sheep was lost because it got distracted. It nibbled its way away from all the rest of them. It was just kind of like, ooh, more grass. Ooh, that's greener. Ooh, that looks good. And it's not walking away thinking, I don't want to be around them or I don't like the shepherd. He's just kind of distracted himself and he realizes, oh no, here I am. And then here comes the shepherd and finds him, puts him on his shoulders and brings him back and rejoices to bring him back into the fold. But notice on the third one that the father doesn't go looking for the son. And that's where you should draw your attention. That's what you should be shocked by. The father doesn't go. Why? Because in the third one, the one that's lost wants to be lost. He's made a concerted effort to be lost. He knows there's a relationship between the father and he severed that relationship and says, I want what's mine when you're dead, but I want it now because you're as much dead to me right now as you ever will be. And so he takes his inheritance and he goes and he spends it on this lavish living. He chases after all these things that he thinks are going to bring him this, this pleasure and this identity and this value into his life, and they never do. And he finds himself bankrupt and he finds himself eating the slop of pigs. So all of his worship and chasing after the things of this life brought him to bankruptcy. And not only that, in a, a, a financial way, but also in a relational way, he has no friends. And also in a very realistic way, he is eating the food of pigs, which are considered unclean to him. And in this moment, at the end of himself, he finds this moment where he says, I'm going to rise up and go back to my father. I know that I don't deserve to be a son and he won't welcome me as a son, but maybe he'll let me just be a servant because the servants in my father's house live better than what I'm living right now. 
And so he goes back, and you can imagine, the story doesn't tell us this, but as he's walking back, you can imagine the conversations that he's playing out in his head about how this is going to go. Dad, I know. Dad, this. Dad. Maybe not even dad. Sir, sir, I, I understand this. Sir, is there any way that I could come and work for you? I, I will work. I will indenture myself to you to, to, to whatever you want. Well, just let me eat, my Lord, you know? I mean, I mean, I'm thinking maybe I'll call him Lord. I don't know what I'm going to do. He's walking through this, and he doesn't even realize maybe that he's gotten to the property. And as he's looking up from his thinking, from his pondering, he sees someone running at him. Now, I know what you're thinking, but I'm just telling you that's not what he's thinking. He's not thinking, here comes my dad to embrace me. He's looking to see if there's a hatchet in his hand. He's looking to see if there's other ones behind him to escort him off the property. He does not, in his wildest dreams, think that he's going to be accepted as a son. But when he fully expects to be tackled and beaten, he's embraced. And the father says, my son, who was dead, is now alive. Let's rejoice. And the story there is lost people are lost for all different kinds of reasons. But he spends a lot of time talking about the one that's lost because they want to be lost. And sometimes you have to let people come to the end of themselves. You can chase after them if you want to, but they're not going to listen. There's no amount of information that's going to change their mind. They don't need information. They need transformation. And sometimes that's something only God can do in certain circumstances of that person's life. And so you wait wait. And when they come to the end of themselves, here they come running back. And there's this beautiful story of restoration. The reason I say that is because you almost have those same parallels and same um, pictures and content of the same story here. Israel is rebelling against God already. I mean, they just heard the law of God spoken to them. Now, I want you to remember, as they're worshiping this idol, it's not like Moses hasn't told them what the 10 words are yet. Okay? Just because he's just now bringing down the tablets, I want to remind you in chapter 20, it says, they heard the words of the Lord come from the mountain. They have already heard them and agreed to them. They said, chapter 24, verse 7, we have heard everything that the Lord has said, and we will obey. They've already agreed to this covenant. And within a matter of days, they are already violating this covenant. And this is where God says to Moses, you know what, this, this stiff-necked people, um, and again, stiff-necked is uh, kind of what I call this, but I, I changed it uh, to stiff-neck people because the text actually says stiff-necked people, and I understand that, but somebody was reading my notes, and they were like, who are these naked people that you're talking about? And I was like, it does look like naked people. So I changed it to stiff neck people so that nobody would get confused. But uh, anyway, the word actually is an agricultural term that talks about saddling a beast with a yoke, okay? And stiff-necked is the idea that the beast won't let you put the yoke on them. They're like, no, I'm not going to do it. It's a picture of arrogance and rebellion. Like, I'm not going to be brought into submission. I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what you say. I'm going to follow the path I want to go. You're not going to steer me in any direction, okay? So this is what God has said. These are a stiff-necked people. And Moses realizes that these people aren't perfect. He realizes that they are sinners, but he intercedes on their behalf, now, Moses' appeal to God, notice, was threefold. I want to remind you, too, before we talk about how Moses is interceding, that God is not shocked by the rebellion of the people. 
okay? He's not sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, they've already rebelled against this covenant that they agreed to. I want to remind you that God's already given instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle, and the very first piece of furniture is a place for a sacrifice for sin, a sin offering, a burnt offering that covers their sin. You see, um, God knows they're sinners. God knows that they're going to sin. Again, that's a reminder that we understand that this conversation experience is for the benefit of Moses, not for the benefit of God. Now, again, Moses' appeal to God was threefold. First, he reminds God that Israel was God's people that God had delivered from Egypt. Because God had thrown that out there, your people that you delivered. No, 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 God, you're the one that delivered them. These are your people. You go back to Exodus chapter 4, and it's like, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. This is you. You're the one that instigated this. You're the one that called me out of the wilderness to walk in there. You're the one that gave me the words. You're the one that gave the victory. You're the one that opened the Red Sea. You delivered your people out of Egypt. You know, sometimes whenever we are interceding for someone, we need to have this conversation with God where we remind ourselves of what God has done in the past, what God has fulfilled, what God is doing. Remember this. This is the first thing that he says to him. He reminds them of what God has done. The second thing is he says, God, you have to preserve your honor. Otherwise, the Egyptians are going to accuse you of being evil. He says, well, you know, all the Egyptians are going to say, look at that God. He just drug those people out there and then consumed them out there in the wilderness. What an evil God he is. And God, you're not an evil God. I know that you're not. So not only does he remind God of what he has done, he reminds God of who he is. And in this process, he's reminding himself of who God is. He's reminding himself of what God has done. And the third one, I think, is more important than anything else, is that Moses believes the covenant is at stake here. In other words, God, Moses remembers what God has said to Abraham. And he goes back and says, don't you remember, this is way before just this people and just before me. This goes all the way back to what you promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who you changed his name to Israel. Remember you told Abraham that he was going to have many, 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 many descendants. They were going to outnumber the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky, and they were going to become a great nation. And all he had was little bitty uh, Isaac running around. And then Isaac had Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob was a, a, a treacherous person. You know, he was, he was terrible. And then all of a sudden, he had these 12 sons. These 12 sons became the tribes. We ended up in Egypt, and you delivered them. This story goes so far back. God, you've got to continue this story. This is a promise you made way back when. So notice that again. What Moses does, he remembers what God has done. He remembers who God is, and he remembers what God has said. Let me just tell you something. When you find yourself in a difficult place in life, that's the best thing you could possibly do, is walk through those three things. Remember what God has done, remember who God is, and remember what God has promised or what he has said. When you walk through those in this attitude of prayer, it endears you to God. It reminds you of what establishes this relationship between you and him. It reminds you that he's eternal and you're, you're not, and that God is the one who's writing this story, this big overarching meta story not this little bitty story that's just your life. He's weaving your story into a much larger one of the gospel. So here in this passage, I believe, are two big lessons. Number one, the compassion of God for a people who deserve punishment. 
They deserve punishment in every facet of their being. They just agreed to all of this. They've already turned away from it. They deserve punishment, but God has compassion. Number two, you see the power of one man's intercession. I think this points to the effectiveness of prayer. Moses is interceding, much like Abraham interceded for the city of Sodom when God was going to rain down hail uh, uh, fire and hail and brimstone. And in that picture, yes, God still brings judgment on Sodom, but he saves out a remnant for himself. And in the same way, God is just to destroy everyone that's there at the foot of the mountain because of their rebellion and their wickedness. But God always saves for himself a remnant. And it is through prayer that we remind ourselves of these things. Notice this. You ever interceded for someone before? I just want you to see that how powerful it is in Scripture, but we may misunderstand the power. Intercession is not about getting God to do something that he's unwilling to do. Intercession is about God changing the way you understand what it is you're interceding for. Because you're going to have to have a change of heart. We see that in a moment. Because when Moses comes down, he actually sees what God's already seen. He's almost just like God. You see the same exact words. Like, I cannot believe y'all are doing this. And he reacts to it. I want to say again, um, look, look how it continues, verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Joshua, remember, was up there with Moses on the mountain. And it says here, Joshua speaks up. He says, he heard the noise of the people that shouted. He said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp, but, he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And this isn't good singing. And as soon as they came near the camp and saw the calf, and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. It was intense. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water, made the people of Israel drink it. Now, you could very easily just say, this is a picture of Moses' anger because he's so angry that they did this and they took this calf. A couple points I want you to see here. Number one, what's that calf made out of? And if you go back just a few chapters, God said, hey, you know all that gold that you brought out of Egypt? I have intentionality for that. I want you to make these pieces of furniture to put in the tabernacle that you will use to worship me and endear yourself to me. I want you to use these things to remind you of who I am and the purity of who I am and my personality and in my holiness. And notice they've already taken those things that were a blessing of God and used them in their rebellion. What about you and I? The giftedness that God has given to you. We are some of the wealthiest people on the face of the planet. I don't care how much money you make, when you compare yourself to the world, we are some of the wealthiest people in the face of the planet. What are you doing with your wealth? What are you doing with the giftedness that God has given you? Moses takes what they've done. He doesn't melt it down and make little bars and say, we need to save this for later. He melts it down. 
He crushes it, pulverizes it, and distributes it in the water. And then he says, drink it. Now, I think there's two things going on here. Number one, you go back in the passage a little bit, and God said, I'm going to go down and consume the people. And Moses says, he relents, he intercedes, God relents. Moses comes down, sees what's happening. He says, I'll tell you what's going to be consumed, that idol that y'all have built, and you're going to consume it. And once you consume it, forgive my crudeness here, but you're going to have turds with gold flakes in it. And it's going to remind you of what that idol really was. You can dress it up with all the gold you want. It's still just a bunch of feces. You've created it with your own hand. It has no value whatsoever. That's ultimately what's happening there. Don't you love that? And you came to church for that today. You can take that away, okay? <laughs> Pastor said turd in church today. I don't know what's going on. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that to be crude or be funny. I'm just trying to make a point that nobody walks out of here and wonders what point I was making. It was, I mean, it's there. I'm using language we are familiar with. Okay. And that's ultimately what this passage is saying. Listen to me. You have been gifted with ways that God has blessed you. It could be on the athletic field, baseball, basketball, football, running, whatever it may be. It could be the fact that you are a, a very astute businessman. You understand those principles. You know how to grow a company. You know how to develop a staff. It, it could be because you are very wise, academic, and you can pursue those things. You understand ways and how information fits together. Maybe you can teach that very well to other people. There's so many different ways that God has gifted you. But when you turn your attention to the thing that God has gifted you and away from the God who has gifted you, you are worshiping something that has zero value. It may look good on the outside. It may bring some kind of monetary value for a time, but ultimately it is just gold flaked feces. Okay. That's what it is. And what you don't realize a lot of times you and I is that we are dancing around and enjoying something that has zero value for eternity. And what we've done is we've turned our eyes away from what life and enjoyment and pleasure is really supposed to be focused in on. It's the one who delivered you. It's the one who gifted you. It's the one who's going to sustain you throughout life. Notice what happens after Moses does this. He turns his attention towards Aaron. And he's like, and you, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? Like, what'd they do to you for you to be so evil towards them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Now, listen, this is not repentance language from Aaron. He's going, hey, little brother, pipe down. You know the people, they're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. I mean, do you see how he's just kind of like very much just kind of generalizing the whole process to take out of the, the fact 
that he fashioned that with his hands, the scripture told us. He's the one that molded it into the shape of the calf. He's the one who heard the people. He's the one that instructed them, take the gold out of your ears and out of your pockets and off of your fingers and bring those to me. He melted it all down. He was the artisan that was doing this and forming this process. But yet he wants to point it on, you know what? Well, if you wouldn't have been on that mountain so long, or it's the fire's fault. I just put it in the fire and now it came out. It's a miracle. It's got to be God. So this is God's fault. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose because Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Now, this is the picture of our idea of repentance. For them to come and get behind Moses, in essence, what they're saying is, we admit that we were wrong. We admit that we have sinned. We admit that we have offended a holy God. And they came and they got behind Moses. Notice it was the sons of Levi, the ones that are going to be the priests that God has called for that purpose. And then he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did as Moses had commanded them. And what a tragic end. Now, again, it tells us in the passage A little bit further down, verse 28. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, we assume, and if we're assuming the numbers are still where they were when they left Egypt, uh, there was the assumption is anywhere from 1.5 to 2 million people left Egypt. So 3,000 of 1.5 to 2 million is not a large percentage, but it is disturbing. That 3,000 men said, we are not with Yahweh. We are not on the Lord's side. And devastation came to their house that day. Now, I know this is heavy, but I want to remind you of something that I think is beautiful in this. That is, because of the law because of man's inability to keep the law, because of man's rebellion, 3,000 men died. What's interesting is you go to the book of Acts chapter 2, and when Pentecost happens, it says the Holy Spirit came and with tongues of fire was over the apostles and they moved out into the streets and Peter began to preach the word of the Lord. And it goes through Peter's entire sermon And after Peter delivers the sermon, the book of Acts in chapter 2 makes a statement. It says, and 3,000 people found life that day. I think it's meant to be a comparison to our passage here today. When the law reigns, death reigns. When the compassion and mercy of God reigns, life reigns. What could not happen in the Old Testament because there was not yet a provision that could sustain people, the law brings death. 
but where the law has been perfectly fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. And as the New Testament writers, you are in Christ, therefore you are redeemed. You are saved. You are adopted. You are loved. You are gifted. You have an inheritance. You have an eternity. You have life to its fullest when you are in Christ. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the law of God. When you find yourself in Christ, you find yourself in the fulfillment. When you find yourself outside of Christ, outside of Yahweh, you only find death. This picture of who is on the side of Yahweh, I think, is a foreshadowing of being found in Christ later on. When you are not found in Christ, there is only death. Moses said today, verse 29, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So I think one of the main, passage, one of the main things of this passage here is about idolatry. We can't get away from that. And idolater is not, well, I love how, I, this is a, from a commentary I was reading. I love how he put it. He said, an idolater is not one who has not known God, but one who, having known God, refuses to glorify him or devises some substitute in life for the praise and glory and worship that belong to God. It's when we focus on ourselves and say, look what we did. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I'm able to do. Look how more gifted I am than you, instead of saying, God, how good you have been to me. If there's anything good in me, it's because of God. God has given me what I have, and I'm just the steward of the things that belong to God. You see, idolatry is not some ridiculous mistake of primitive people. And it is by no means a dead or irrelevant issue for us today. It is the common sin of most everyone who is sitting or standing in this room right now. The lessons from this passage are so many and touch so many areas of life we've just scratched the surface. But I think one of the core lessons is this. Whenever anyone or anything usurps the place that God should have in our lives, we are guilty of idolatry. When anyone or anything usurps the place that God should have in our lives, we're guilty of idolatry. Now, look how the passage continues the last few verses. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Uh, I don't have time to go into all. I mean, this is so chock full of stuff. I, could, I, I literally started writing the other day, and I found about 25 sermons I could write out of just this passage right here, Okay. 
And, the, and a lot of it is in these last five verses, especially when it comes to the point of the people and Aaron. It's about the church and the leadership of the church. There's so much there that it's pointing to. Did God not go with them to the land? Because it says, go ahead of me. I'll send my angel with them. But I want to remind you that the angel of the Lord is a picture of the presence of God in the Old Testament. So it isn't that God's sending them away and not going with them. But there's a lot in this passage. But ultimately, what I want to point out to you is that you see a reverse of creation in this story. Did you notice that? You know, when you watch the creation story, it starts with the simple and moves to the complex and the, in, the fact that it ends with man. Did you notice in this story, we're going backwards with God, man, calf. It starts going backwards. Whenever you see rebellion, you see the reverse of creation. Okay. And that's what happens when we turn away from God, things begin to unravel. When you see the the uh, judgment of God poured out, you always see the reverse of creation. Again, I point you back to uh, Egypt. You see the de-evolution or the decreation of the organization of everything in Egypt with the plagues being poured out. You see light and darkness in that one sense. You see waters that are split apart so that you know, Israel can walk through. And then when the judgment of God is poured out, the waters come back together. In creation, God separated the waters on the second day. Okay, when they come back together, that's a picture of decreation. So again, over and over again, you need to pay attention to these pictures of creation because it's telling you what's happening in the story. And ultimately, the one thing I want to point out and make sure you don't miss from this is that this is a foreshadowing because the book of Hebrews picks up on the fact that Jesus is a better Moses. What did Moses do? Moses interceded on behalf of Israel. Now he went down and he was angry and he did some angry things, but Jesus did too, didn't he? You remember when Jesus walked into the temple and said, my father's house would be called a house of prayer and he turned into a den of thieves and he took a whip and he turned tables over and he threw money all over the place. What's that money made out of? Precious metals. It represents gold and value and all these things. Jesus threw those things away. Why? Because what had happened is the Jews had come into this place that was called the court of Gentiles. It was a place that all the people who were outside of Israel could come close and consider the one true God. The one that the Israelites said, this is the God that visited us. This is the only true God. And he invites all to come to him. And they have the court of Gentiles where Gentiles could come and pray and reflect on the possibility that this might be the one true God. And they turned it into a marketplace where there was nothing but distraction going on. Where it was only about what you do and what you have to offer and what you can buy. Jesus turned that place upside down. See, Jesus is a better Moses because Moses didn't understand really what was going on. Jesus understood it perfectly. And Jesus played the part of being the greatest mediator between the covenant of God and the rebellious people of God to cover their sins and to bring them into right relationship with God to cure their rebellion, to take care of their sin problem, and to help them find rest from all of their working, all of their striving. And because of Jesus, we have the right to have a relationship with God directly. We don't have to go through Moses. We don't have to go through another man or a priest or anything like that. We can go boldly, the writer of Hebrews says, to the very throne room of God. Why? Because Jesus ever intercedes for us. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. If that's true, then it should be your ambition and my ambition in life 
to live the greatest potential that my life can achieve. And what scripture keeps pointing us to is that potential will only be realized in a relationship with God. It will never be realized in your own pursuits of things in this world, whether it's a relationship, whether it's an academic achievement, whether it's an athletic achievement, or whether it's some kind of business achievement, or whether it's just some kind of personal success. It will never be anything more than golden flaked feces. Your true value will only be found when you understand why you were created. The only way to know how you were created and why you were created is in a relationship with God. There, everything begins to make sense. Let's pray. God, we come to you today for you to make sense of a lot of things for us because we don't fully understand you or ourselves, the world that we live in, and sometimes the gifts that you've given to us. And maybe even sometimes, shall we say, the gifts that you haven't given to us. Why, why don't we have this? Or why does other people have this and I don't have this? And so, Lord, a lot of times we have this, this problem of questioning, questioning you and questioning ourselves. Same thing Moses did in the very beginning, question everything. But at some point, we have to set our questions aside and say, we trust you. You're the God of the universe. And give you a place in our heart and our lives for you to endear us to your heart so that we may find out and realize what it was we were created for, to find out where our true value is and to find out how to get the most out of the gifts that you've given to us and what they're there for and how they can expand your kingdom and your glory and your renown because those are the things that we should desire and we wanna see your name be made great. So God, may we be found faithful. The Lord, inevitably, there's going to be those moments that we don't. God, we thank you that so long ago, you turned away from what you should have done, what the law requested and required. And instead, <clears throat> you took that yourself and you paid that penalty. You bled the blood, you died the death so that we may know life. God, as this all just swarms and covers us, I pray that that reality would set in deep in our souls and that you would help us to understand that the way that we live life and the things we dedicate ourselves to really speaks to the truth of what we're worshiping. God, may we be found faithful, worshiping you, waiting on you, for your name and your renown become the desire of our hearts.